Well, Born is basically about a woman in a kind of post-apocalyptic ruined city that's still kind of blooming with unexpected life because of abandoned biotech. It's about a woman who's a scavenger and who comes across something that looks a little like a terrestrial sea anemone, and it's actually embedded in the fur of the giant bear that terrorizes the city. And at first she's drawn to it because it reminds her of the island nation that she grew up on. And then she takes it home and she very much becomes kind of a mother to it as it grows and actually turns out to be intelligent. And everything kind of comes out of that as there may be a kind of divide between what this creature was made to do and the way that she tries to bring it up to do the right thing. That's author Jeff Vandermeer describing the plot of his novel Born, which is one of the newest Big Read titles. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Jeff Vandermeer is a prize-winning author and former NEA Literary Fellow whose work eludes genre classification. Speculative fiction? You bet. Science fiction? Yes. Fantasy? Well, he won the World Fantasy Award three times. Ecofiction? Definitely. And The New Yorker has named him the king of weird fiction. But however you classify it, Vandermeer's work is utterly his own and absolutely fascinating. He first became a best-selling author with his trilogy, The Southern Reach, which consists of the books Annihilation, which was adapted into a Hollywood film starring Natalie Portman, Authority, and Acceptance. Vandermeer is a prolific author, writing short stories and nonfiction as well as novels. He followed the Southern Reach trilogy with Bourne, a moving, thrilling literary page-turner that one reviewer wrote reads like a dispatch from a world lodged somewhere between science fiction, myth, and a video game. In 2019, Bourne was chosen for the NEA's National Community Reading Program, The Big Read, which is how I got to speak with Jeff Vandermeer, who took me through the very interesting process of how the idea for Bourne came to be. You know, I grew up overseas. I grew up on an island, and I'd always wanted to use some of that experience. And I also wanted to, after the Southern Reach series, which was very much about pristine wilderness, to write about environmental themes in an urban setting. And so really the way I work is that I put these ideas into my subconscious and I say, these are the things I want to do eventually. Help me do them. And then I just don't think about it a while. It's like I've just put it into a place where it's going to germinate. And so one day I had this sudden image of this woman reaching out again to this kind of glowing sea anemone-like creature that at first I thought was in amongst some seaweed, like it was in a tidal pool. And then I realized it was actually the tangled, matted fur of a bear And then I realized it was a giant Godzilla-sized bear. And then I realized that the bear could fly. And the bear just flew off and kind of blew my mind while I was thinking about this. (laughs) But then there was this woman who was left pulling this thing back towards her. And I, I realized that she was somebody who had grown up in the South Pacific and had been displaced by climate change. And I realized that the thing that she was holding was actually intelligent. It had been been a, a made creature. And so all of these things suddenly took on a life of their own. And, you know, I kind of literally just went to bed after this kind of revelation. And when I woke up in the morning, as again happens with my subconscious, I had this ruined city in my head. I realized that the biotech in her hand was just the tip of the iceberg, that this whole city was littered with the products of this company. 
which had basically mined out the city for its resources and was still there on the edge of the city like a blood engorged tick still having a malign intent. Uh, and that all of this would, would come back to a very personal story about Rachel and this creature, but also a more mind-bending, larger story arc about this place and about this company. I want to take this step by step by step. And the first is, on a very basic level, I want you to describe what biotech is for people who might not know. Right. Well, biotech is a kind of any human interference with animal life. And many of us will remember as our first encounter with it, stories of cloned sheep or the mouse with the ear growing out of its back. And things like that are happening more frequently as we become more adept at uh, altering life in general at the cellular level. And so one possible future is uh, a future where we do more and more of this manipulation. Uh, it is, of course, something that on a lower level we've been doing for years because, or centuries because we modify plants, we modify uh, animals by selective breeding. So that's kind of like a very low-tech version of biotech. But in the future, we will have the ability to completely create creatures and hybrids of creatures. And I think that this is something that speculative fiction is really adept at dealing with, which is to say that I don't think there's really been enough ethical and moral thought about what we're doing and why and whether it's actually right to manipulate animals the more we learn about how intelligent they are and how complex. And so that wedded with the climate change and environmental issues is really what, what drives Bourne and, and made me think of this as a possible future, even at the same time that you know, I'm dealing with it in kind of a science fantasy way. There's a f giant flying bear in the novel. <laughs> so it, it's almost more in a magic realist vein in some ways uh, than it is a pure science fiction vein. Well, I was going to ask you about that later on, but we can certainly talk about it now. Um, to me, Bourne seems very much like a combination of fantasy and science fiction, uh, using tropes from both and being completely convincing in both, but being neither one nor the other. Right. And, and I thought, how do I tackle this? And, and how do I tackle it from my character's perspective? And of course, my, my character, Rachel, is a scavenger who has many, many skills and is very intelligent, but she is not a scientist. She is not someone who creates biotech. So to your ordinary person, you know, you can't describe how a smartphone works or what the intricacies of it is. And so it's not that it's magic, but it's not really science fiction, so to speak, you know, even if it was something that didn't exist yet in the context of Bourne. And the same thing with the biotech. I mean, there is a reason for the flying bear, although I always really appreciated Angela Carter's Nights at the Circus, where she has a woman who flies in a circus and she never tells you whether it's using wires or whether it's actual magic or something. But the point is that sometimes you can get to a better psychological distance if you're not using just pure straight on reality. And if you're not uh, having to tackle, I have to explain to the reader how this works in kind of realistic science fictional detail. And so you can get past that. You can get past that to a point that may seem more purely futuristic because oftentimes those descriptions are about a novelist in the present day who cannot really imagine a place from a future character's perspective because a future character wouldn't dwell on the details of that any more than in a contemporary mainstream novel, you're going to find five pages about how a smartphone works. Exactly. And that could be also why I often find science fiction very, very cold. Mm. And I, I certainly didn't find that with this novel. 
those books I find that aren't, I, I really like, but that is always the thing that tends to put me off about that. And I wonder if that imagining the emotional life of people in the future is, is part of that difficulty. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it really is a, an issue for each individual reader as to how much of the kind of quote-unquote information you can assimilate and, and enjoy. I mean, there's certainly writers who are very good at what I would call science fictional exposition, where it has kind of a magical life of its own, and it's a delight to read. But for me, personally, it always has to be about the character viewpoint and being very internal to the character, and, and also not using inert information. I, I really hate that. I, I want everything in the novel to be alive on some level. And so one of the delights of the novel, and I think one other reason why it works, I hope, you know, from what readers have told me, is that the city is the setting, but the biotech is in a way the setting. You know, the city is very much alive, even though it's broken. And so, so those elements, those, those other strange animals and stuff become part of how everything comes alive. But yeah, I, I definitely am always very tight in on character interiority. That's why the style of my books changes so much from book to book, because it's always based on the character. And until I get that right over the first few pages, I can't, I can't proceed. Interesting you should say that, because I, I'd like to talk about four of the five named characters <laughs> in the book. And beginning with Rachel, who's our protagonist and our narrator. She's our guide through this book. Yeah. We see the world through her eyes. And, you know, she's an incredibly rich, resourceful, and altogether admirable mm -hmm. character, I think. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to tell me about her and what went into her creation. Well, I often create characters with very varied shades of gray, and I very rarely have true full-on villains. And in this case, the more I thought about Rachel, the more I thought that she was a direct, honest person who always tried her best, and that I had enough characters that were not that way, that actually if she wasn't that way, which I also thought was just true to the person I'd imagined, that the, the book would be very destabilized. And in the end, it would be very nihilistic and not about anything, if you know what I mean. And so I just tried to follow that. It, just, it, it was just as simple as this is what Rachel will do because Rachel is direct, because Rachel is honest. And it's true that she does kind of withhold some information in a couple of places. But in her defense, something about her wanting to be more psychologically honest about what she's telling. And then, you know, at a certain point, you may realize that the place from which she's telling the story is not quite in the moment anyway. So she's had some perspective on it. This did create some decisions that were endemic to the, the novel structure, which is to say she, she suffers a great trauma in the first third of the book. And I really hate books where someone experiences a trauma and then, you know, a few chapters down the road, there's, there's no impact. And so there's this section that could be seen as floating, which is really her dealing with the trauma that means that the book structure is actually affected very, very much so by, by this character. And she, she is one of my favorite, favorite characters that I've created just because she's a kind of honesty that I can get behind. I can get very cynical about directness and honesty and in the world we live in, but Rachel makes me very uncynical. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. She lives with Wick. My mind really changed about him through the course of that book. Yeah, he's meant to be a very ambivalent character, and I understand people who don't like him at the end. You can interpret his behavior in a lot of different ways, and I, I tried very hard not to pass judgment on him one way or the other, not to lead the reader as to how they should feel about him. And so I've gotten a lot of different reactions. I also wanted this thing that I don't see that often in what you might call post-apocalyptic uh, fiction, which is 
complications of relationships. Uh, Post-apocalyptic novels tend to simplify things down to right-wing militias against non-right-wing militias yes. or <laughs> yes. things like yes. that. And I thought, yes. I haven't really seen a messy interpersonal relationship in this kind of novel. And so one of the right. pivotal... that's fraught. Yeah, that's fraught. I mean, one of the pivotal scenes for me in the novel is where Rachel and Wick just have a drop-dead argument all about all the personal crap that's wrong in their lives. And it was very important to me to have that in the book because I think that it's wrong when we suggest a future in the, these kinds of disaster situations that, that doesn't portray the full range of human emotions because all this stuff is still going to be happening. And, and then we have our flying bear, Mord. <laughs> And to call him just a flying bear makes him seem so much more benign than he is because he is a terrible, ferocious creature who, you know, our feelings become again, you know, a little softened as we learn about his his history. Yes, considering where he comes from. But then also I, I see Mord as being just as honest as Rachel, just in a different direction. Like he's always exactly who he's going to be. There's no artifice to him. <laughs> And so I think one reason that the reader may warm to him a little bit, even though he is horrible, is that consistency compared to the inconsistency of some others. But I, I have to admit, I, I feel tested more over many years while I was writing Born. I used to change my Facebook profile icon to a, a snarling bear and pretend to be Mord in all caps. And it was very instructive about social media because people would start responding to the bear and be upset when the bear said that it was going to tear their head off and <laughs> things like that even though it still said Jeff Vandermeer on it. But I actually field-tested his voice, so by the time that I, I wrote the novel, even though he doesn't ever speak in the novel, I had a really good sense of his character, and I, I really wanted to preserve a lot of very bear-like tendencies and get the descriptions right, but also kind of get across that he's this unique character. And to me, he also has this symbolism that's beyond the physicality. You have to get the physicality right, and then the theme hopefully comes along, which is that for a lot of us with climate change, it's really hard to imagine that moment when we're dislocated from everything. And to me, it is literally like something as inexplicable as a giant psychotic flying bear appears on the horizon. And your mind kind of breaks because you just don't know how to deal with that. And I think that there are people in the world who have already had to deal with that with regard to climate change. And so although in some ways Mord comes out of a Miyazaki movie or can seem weirdly, psychotically cuddly, he's also a very serious character in that way. And then there's Born, and you told us where the idea of Born came from. But I wonder, were there any creatures that you thought of that inspired the character of Born? Well, I mean, I have studied squid, cuttlefish, and other invertebrates for a very long time. I mean, uh, some of my early novels, I thought, and they were fantasy novels, what is the, the weirdest creature on Earth, the one that seems like it's kind of alien? You know, those kinds of life forms are really interesting to kind of extrapolate or to bring into a, a non-realist point of view because they already bring that with them. Squid are very much shape changers. They have a lot of unique, interesting attributes. And so squid was definitely one of those things I thought of with regard to Bourne. And then also certain kinds of plant life, because plants are more active and alive than we give them credit for. They just move so slowly. If we saw the motion of plants, <laughs> it'd be quite fascinating to us. And we begin to think of them as more, you know, not like people, but that, that they were more like animals, so to speak. Um, so I was thinking of those two things together. And uh, then that was wedded with the, the early born before everything goes bad. I was very much thinking of the conversations I used to have with my stepdaughter when she was trying to learn about the world. And so there was a point at which my stepdaughter saw a ferret and she didn't have the word for it. And instead she pointed at it and said, long mouse. 
And so that detail is in there because Bourne sees a picture of a ferret and says Longmouse. And so I think that imbues it with this personal aspect, which then the imagination is is added to it. But I don't think Bourne exists without those conversations that I had with my stepdaughter, at least the early Bourne. Well, the early Bourne, you emphasize so much those childlike elements yeah. of him. Obviously, we're seeing him through Rachel's eyes, which also mm-hmm. emphasizes mm-hmm. that. But what I found so interesting is you have him repeat her name mm-hmm. when he speaks to yeah. her. And one thing that it did help me do was clearly hear his voice. Mm. There was something about the repetition, the way he would say Rachel and always include her name, that just crystallized him for me. Yeah, and the voice is not in any way my daughter's voice, just some of the the words, some of the exchanges. But yeah, I I don't know how that crystallized. I really don't know. But from the very beginning, as soon as he spoke, I knew how he spoke. I knew he had this repetition of her name in a way, because she's his anchor to the world. So he keeps reestablishing that anchor in a way by saying her name. But there's also other reasons that he says her name, because the one thing I had to try to convey, too, and I don't know how well I conveyed it, is that as innocent as he is at the beginning, he has so many more senses than she does. And he may not even be existing totally in the same time and place. He may simultaneously be experiencing something else, as is inferred in the novel. And so a lot of those benign conversations, including one about culture versus nature and, and a misunderstanding of words, I feel like he's trying to, with the limited vocabulary he has, tell her something else, something else he's experiencing. And he, he has this frustration of he doesn't know the words to use. And his mind at that point, in terms of the amount of information he has in it, isn't complex enough to totally convey it. And so there was, there was the delight as a failed poet in trying to make the words do more than two or three things. I think in novels, they have to do two or three things. In poems, they have to do five or six things. And then there was also the delight in the fact that as he became a teenager, Bourne is trying out so many things that he's learned that his voice doesn't have to be consistent. And as a novelist, this is like the best thing because it's like you can play around and he can have different tones and you don't have to worry about reconciling them and you can just have fun with it. Usually you'd be like, oh, that that line doesn't make any sense. But with Bourne as a teenager, it does. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Islands play such a large role in this book, both real islands and metaphorical ones. I mean, we talked about Rachel's origin island, the island she came from. And then Balcony Cliffs, where Rachel and Wick live, is an island of sorts unto itself. And the company operates as an island as well. They are obviously the metaphorical islands. But underlying that, I think, are connections and characters that are trying so hard to connect. Yeah, it's very different from the Southern Reach trilogy. There was supposed to be a kind of a tension between the fact that they're all trying to connect with this thing, Area X, even as in their personal lives, none of the characters can connect with anybody else. So that that results in in what I would call, even with some of the humor in the second book, a colder kind of feel. And then Bourne is more like this over-the-top, more dramatic thing that then is wedded to, you know, these personal relationships where it's very important to characters, even in the midst of chaos and uh, societal collapse, to connect. Maybe more so, um, because it's the one, one of the things you can actually control. Uh, and so that's the way I saw it, is that even if the world is dying around you or you're in the middle of this titanic change, you can at least preserve 
something of the way things were through how your relationships are with other people. And so I think there's that on the general sense. And then there's the fact that no matter what, no matter what you think about Wick, he's still trying. He is really trying in his way with his constraints to make that relationship work. And it's important to him. And the same thing with Rachel. And I think at the end of the day, if you value that relationship by the end of the book, it's because they try so hard, even when they have every excuse not to. At the back of the paperback edition, on a funner note, (laughs) you include a bestiary, (laughs) which is so fabulous. Can you tell me what went into the making of that and why you decided to include it? Well, um, it's kind of funny because I think like Born um, was just meant to be this thing that because it's overflowing with this hidden life has overflowed in terms of what I've written since. So I was supposed to just deliver like a short story to my publisher, FSG, connected to Born. And instead, I created this bestiary because I have a habit of doing kind of metafictional things anyway. But also, uh, you know, Eric Nyquist, who illustrated that, I knew he did really great strange beasties. So it kind of like galvanized me. But, you know, as an amateur biologist, which is to say someone who wanted to be a marine biologist, but didn't have the capacity to to sit down for chemistry classes and whatnot, and just like looking in tidal pools. I really do like coming up with descriptions of creatures. And some of them riff off of real creatures. Some of them are completely out there. Like there's a kind of biotech called autonomous meat that's (laughs) really kind of terrifying. (laughs) That's kind of like just like bait to bring scavengers out so they can themselves be be eaten by others. And I shouldn't be laughing about that. But then also, you know, I I loved having like a mythology of silverfish, by which I really Mm -hmm. mean, um, I think we'd call them more house centipedes, which are very... um, maligned, even though they're actually very good for houses, though most people just want to kill them on site. Like, they're very creepy looking, Jeff, you oh, have to I admit. I like them. I think they're actually very cool Do looking. <laughs> but I don't and have... I am, I mean, and I am queen of the don't kill it, don't kill it. But <laughs> I don't have many of those ick factors. The only one I have is cockroaches, because they used to burrow into my ears while I was asleep in Fiji. Oh. Uh, yeah, so I, I can't really deal with that. That's probably where the memory beetles came from. Um, because I probably thought of them. I bet you're right. (laughs) I didn't even realize that till just now. But anyway, so that was a lot of fun. And but it also led to other stories. I wrote a novella called Strange Bird, FSG released. And I just wrote a novel called Dead Astronaut. So the thing just keeps like spiraling out stories. And there were things in there that had a resonance or a symbolism that made my imagination want to know more about them without like killing the symbolism, if you know what I mean. So all these stories like add to the canon without like explaining everything in every detail. Right. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. You said you grew up in the Fiji Islands and you come from a family of scientists. Mm -hmm. So you sort of come to this natural world and its varieties very honestly. Right. Well, um, my dad taught at the University of South Pacific. My family was in the Peace Corps and that's in Fiji. And he's always studied invasive insects as a research chemist and entomologist. And so he was studying the rhinoceros beetle while he was there. And so we would go on these field trips to very wild, unspoiled places, even though where we lived was like literally right near the beach and also wild and unspoiled. So I was very much always surrounded by wilderness. My mom was a biological illustrator. She had to give that up because computers do that now instead in terms of modeling, you know, but she would do sea turtle drawings. She did stuff for various sea turtle experts, for fairly famous bird naturalists, things like that. 
uh, even my, my stepmother is one, is one of the world's leading uh, researchers on lupus. Our daughter is now, uh, I would say, arguably at the forefront of sustainability consulting uh, in terms of what she's doing for Singapore and the city of Charlotte and, and several other places. My sister is involved in guerrilla studies and is the sustainability expert for the University of Edinburgh, and, which is just to say that there's a, a ton of people around me that, that kind of made some form of science or biological inquiry just kind of be part of what I knew in addition to all the wilderness places. And then moving to North Florida uh, after that was kind of an extension of it because this is a very wild, biodiverse place as well, and so it just accentuated that process. And when did you begin to write, or, or mm-hmm. how did you come to a career in writing? Well, that's actually kind of funny, because it was, again, through animals. Like, I was an avid birder as a kid, uh, in addition to writing really crappy poetry. So I kept these birding lists in, in Fiji. I mean, it was absolutely an amazing, rich place for birds, because it was a, a volcanic island, so it even had uh, mountain peaks where you would get a little bit of snow in the, in the so-called winter. So I'd keep these birding lists, and then eventually at the same time I was reading like uh, Aesop's fables. My parents read to me a lot, so they would read me a lot of William Blake for some reason. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, things like (laughs) Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. But anyway, so narrative began to infiltrate the birding lists in a way, which is that I at one point got bored of just listing birds, and I would start to write little Aesop's fables about different birds. And then from there, the bird journals basically became journals of, of my first short fiction. And then there were other formative things, uh, like instead of taking raises, my parents took travel vouchers. So when we finally did come back from Fiji, we spent six months traveling around the world, and I was nine, which is just perfect for that. And at the same time, they gave me Lord of the Rings at age of nine. And and what I will tell you about reading Lord of the Rings at that age is you don't understand most of it. (laughs) But in the mysteriousness, your imagination begins to take hold. So in a weird way, it was actually better than if I understood it because I wanted to begin to create stories I could understand out of what I didn't understand. And so I think those are the things that all kind of led into it. I would also say (laughs) on a more serious note that I had extreme allergies in Fiji. So there's this weird juxtaposition of pain and beauty because the place was so amazing. And my parents were also going through a divorce. So there's all these juxtaposition of things that shouldn't belong together, that kind of got jolted together and I think fused to, to make me a writer. Okay. You had to have had day jobs as huh, you were, yes. <laughs> you know, getting your career together as a writer. Tell me about some of your day jobs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to say, see what I can say and not say. Maybe the most fun I had was actually leading up a team that created content for the FCAT Explorer. The FCAT's the state standardized test. And so we would create all these little uh, amazing little English passages uh, that students would be tested on online as a model for the actual test, a way of practicing. So that, that was a lot of fun and taught me a lot about narrative because you have to compress so much into so little space. And what you learn there, of course, is it doesn't matter what topic it is. The only thing that will make it not boring to the student is if the person writing about it is passionate about it. And when would you do your own writing? Uh, that's the thing that's quite funny is that when I became a full-time writer in 2007, I realized that the fact that I had had to write uh, in the morning and at lunch and sometimes in the evening had made me misjudge how long it took me to write a novel. <laughs> I mean, I had one novel that took me 10 years to write because I just wrote it at lunch every day. <laughs> so you, you learn a certain amount of patience. Um, it was very valuable because I would have to hold a novel idea in my head for a very long time. And I would have to, like, keep that flame going. 
even if I couldn't write in a particular day. So I learned really that the most important thing was to always have the novel in my imagination every day, to be thinking about it every day and writing down little notes and, and never, ever to not be near a piece of paper and a pen. So I would say that my entire career, I have never not written down an idea that's come to me. And I think that's why they keep coming, because my subconscious knows I will at least write it down, even if I lose the piece of paper. But yeah, it's been very interesting uh, adjusting to full-time writing. And it's more or less the same process, in a sense, in that I think about something for a very long time before I put it down on paper. And then by the time I put it on paper, if I've thought about it enough, it doesn't take very long to write. When you look at the trajectory of the books that you've written, do you have themes that you see that you return to again and again? Well, one is the value of those interpersonal relationships and the value of love, which can seem very saccharine, but in the context in which I usually put it, is maybe one of the saving graces of some of the novels from being too gloomy. Because I think it is something that's very important and very human. The environment, too. I mean, even my first novel, Venice Underground, was very much about climate change. And that was back in, I wrote, started writing that in the late 80s. So the environment, how we view animal life, these things have, have always been there. And they've just kind of, I think, reached critical mass in the sense that they've intersected with the world's concerns more and more. And I found more and more, I think, complex and interesting ways to maybe express them and more various characters. Like when I first started writing, I was writing characters, I think, that were very much like myself, as I think you do, as you're kind of learning all kinds of craft. And I think starting with Annihilation and even before that, I've been able to hopefully successfully in inhabit a, a wider range of characters. Born is a big read book yes. added to the big read library. Tell me what your thoughts are about that. I was just blown away by that. I was really, really quite happy to be in that amazing company. And then the other thing is when things like this happen, it's really great for my continuing education because I get these book lists and I may not have read everything on them. And so as a voracious reader, it's like, oh, great, now I can dive into this or or even just saying, wow, I'm, I'm so thrilled that Lab Girl's on there because I love that book. So no, and, and everyone's been really great. Um, I also love the interaction behind the scenes when it's with really creative, interesting people. And what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to the conversations. I always am I'm interested in the dialogue. Um, one of the cities uh, that's adopted uh, the book is Tallahassee, my, home, my hometown here. And so one thing I'm looking forward to is the fact that the themes fit in with some of my core loves, which is to say the St. Francis Wildlife Rescue Association, St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge. It's a great opportunity to interact with the community and celebrate the, the, the amazing animal life and things that we have. At the same time, we can talk about science. We can talk about, well, hell, we can even talk about parenting. <laughs> but mostly, you know, it's also reactive. It's like, what is what are the people who did the grant, what do they want to talk about? Um, what am I going to learn from the people that I come into dialogue with? And and so I, to me, it's it's really going to be an amazing interdisciplinary experience. I always love that. I always love it when it's not just me talking to other writers or just going to a writer's conference, but people in a lot of different disciplines. How much do you interact with readers now? A lot. I, I'm on social media a lot. I, um, I'm completely off the Internet when I'm working on a novel, but otherwise I'm, I'm usually on, on Twitter and, and Facebook. 
And I get a lot of feedback. There's a lot of, uh, especially for Born, as you might imagine, there's a lot of fan art and a lot of fan art by professional artists. Oh, yeah. It cries out for it. <laughs> yes. And yeah. uh, there may be fan fiction, which I, I encourage. I don't read it because usually I'm still thinking there might be some additional fiction I'm going to write. So it's, it's for their and my protection, so to speak. But I do encourage it. There's a lot of music based on Born. I mean, you know, th that's the one thing about social media is if you use it right and you express an openness to sharing what you've created and to have something come back and create enough space for people's imaginations, what you get back actually influences the work. So some of the Born fan art has influenced the next book, Strange Bird and, um, and Dead Astronauts. So there's this wonderful synergy going on, and I hope to continue that on an even grander level with the NEA Big Read. Well, Jeff, thank you for giving me your time. Thank you for writing this book. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Jeff Vandermeer. He's the author of the novel Born, one of the recent additions to the Big Read Library. You can find out more about Born and the other Big Read titles at arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do, and leave us a rating on Apple if you like us, because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.